0: Let's pray. We have a a wonderful task before us this afternoon, which is to read together the account of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And it is powerful in its own right. If you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, uh, you'll know that simply the presentation is powerful. We're also going to look at the meaning uh, that Jesus gives to his death. And so we need to pray that God give us strength and the power of his Holy Spirit uh, to understand what we're going to read today. Let's pray and ask God for that blessing. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would grant to us your Holy Spirit of wisdom and truth, that the eyes and our hearts could be enlightened, that we may see Jesus in all his glory on the cross and in seeing believe and in believing follow and we ask it in his name, Amen. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had one of those moments when you thought to yourself, it all comes down to this. Right here, right now, this is it. This is the moment. After this, everything is different. Time seems to slur, vision is very tunneled. You feel a bit like Neo in the Matrix. You're ducking and weaving slow moving objects as they come to you. I found getting engaged a very easy thing. I mean, easy to to do once I'd started going out with the girl. Uh, I'm not one of those snaggy types. You might be one of these snaggy types types who finds commitment difficult. Uh, I'm not like that. I find commitment very easy. I'm the eldest son of an immigrant family, so I'm a committed kind of person. I've been going out with Katrina for a little while, and in fact, didn't actually ever get around to proposing to her. I just kind of talked her into marrying me. The preparations for the wedding were very easy, they usually are when you don't do anything. Uh, the higher suits fitted, I got to the church early, all was going swimmingly. Until about 30 seconds before the ceremony was due to start. Completely out of the blue, I had an absolute panic. I tried hard to remember the name of the person I was about to marry. I found that difficult. I suddenly thought, this is it, this moment. This next hour, everything in my life changes from here. What if she's not the right one? What if we don't get on? Apparently, surveys reveal that 80% of your future life's happiness depends on your spouse. And for about 15 seconds, I just freaked out. I mean, I was panicking. The hour had come and I was about to black out. Uh, one of my groomsmen, a good friend of mine, looked at me and asked if I was okay. He, perhaps he noticed that I'd got completely white and broken out in a cold sweat. Uh, And that sort of slapped me out of it. I woke up, I made my vows, and apart from being saved by God, that hour was without doubt the greatest and most wonderful hour of my entire life. Well, over the next three weeks, uh, as uh, Ryan said, we're going to be looking at the passion of the Christ. Uh, Not the movie, the book. The book's always better than the movie. And especially as the Apostle John brings it to us. Uh, He brings to us the moment of crisis. The hour, the this-is-it moment, not just of an individual but for the whole world, the, the hinge point for the entire universe, the time when for the entire creation, when for every human being it all came down to this moment. It's a worldview-defining read, I want to suggest. It's the perfect way to start your university year. And for some, I guess, even your university career to set ourselves as those who will honor Christ on this campus. The reason that it's the hinge point for the universe uh, is that it was the hinge point for the creator of the universe, uh, the one through whom all things were created, the one in whom was life, and that life was the light of all people. It was the moment for Jesus, his point of no return, what he called his hour. His hour which had been on the horizon for a while. Some had tried to force it upon him, this hour. Though they didn't understand it that way, of course, uh, he had said to them, it's not my time yet. Five times in the Gospel of John, he says so. Verse, chapter 2, verse 4, my hour has not yet come. Chapter 7, verse 4, uh, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Chapter 7, verse 8, I'm not going to this festival, for my time has not yet fully come. Uh, chapter 7, verse 30, they tried to arrest him, but no one could lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8 verse 20, he spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because, you guessed it, his hour had not yet come. But now, now, at chapter 12 verse 23 and then again at the start of chapter 17, Jesus announces the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Or chapter 17, verse 1, he prays, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. The hour is all about His glory. The glory of Jesus, the glory that He had with the Father in the beginning. Deep, heavy, weighty splendour. That's what glory is. It's a word originally to do with the idea of weight, weightiness. I've been getting more glorious as I get older wait here but having said this and after praying Jesus goes forward he steps forward to his glory to his hour he quite deliberately gets himself killed John chapter 18 verse 1 and uh, it be helpful if you look it up uh, I'll, I'll give you the bring your Bible to uni speech ready here it goes bring your Bible to uni won't you Uh, There's no point not having a Bible at uni. It's a complete waste of time coming to uni without a Bible. You have your watch, you have your keys, you have your mobile phone, the essentials of modern life. Bring your Bible to uni, which is another essential of modern life. You can't go to an intellectual institution like this without having the foundation of modern Western society, which is the Bible. So it's the textbook for your university degree. Bring a Bible to uni. If you've got one from the Gideons, you can use that. It's only a quarter of the Bible, Uh, but uh, it's better than nothing. Um, The EU will happily send you to a bookseller where you can buy a Bible. John chapter 18, verse 1. After Jesus had spoken these words, that is his prayer to his father, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, just east of Jerusalem it is, uh, to a place where there was a garden where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, we're going to look at two chapters over five scenes. You'll see it there in your outline. And we're going to work hard to ride the contours of the narrative, picking up the clues of the meaning that's given to us on the way through. Jesus here, the light of the world, goes out into the darkness, physically and physically spiritually. The word here for detachment, the detachment of soldiers, is a bit like our word for battalion. It actually means a fixed number of people. I don't know how many people you think came to arrest Jesus, Judas, a couple of scraggly old high priests, and, you know, a soldier or two. No. The word detachment or battalion means in theory a thousand people. Uh, Probably more likely 600, 700, something like that. The entire of this theatre filled three times over Comes out to get Jesus. Chum, 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 chum. Sabres rattling, swords glowing, lanterns flickering. They're here en masse. An intimidating experience, you might think, being confronted by 600 soldiers with swords. What's stunning, of course, is that Jesus is in absolute control. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward. He steps forward again and asks them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Or perhaps it's uh, better in the original, it doesn't, there's no he there, it's just I am. Uh, if you've uh, read John's Gospel, you know that throughout the Gospel, Jesus has repeatedly said, I am. It's a scandal to say, I am. Uh, there's only one person around here who's called Cade. That's me. No one else gets to use that name. Anyone else being called that name will be stealing my considerable glory that's the way it is, it's my name, you use your own name Kwan or something you know, silly like that <laughs> you use my name, you're claiming my status husband to Katrina and father to three glorious children etc etc Jesus takes to his own lips the name of God here, I am Yahweh the great I am when Jesus said to them, I am, they stepped back and fell to the ground, presumably all six or seven hundred of them. You wonder who's in control? No, you don't wonder who's in control, it's pretty obvious. Judas, it is clear, has gone over to the dark side. The text records that he stands with them in spirit as well as in body, but none of them can resist the royal divine presence of Jesus. Still, Jesus won't let his hour be derailed by their understanding of his glory and so he again steps forward, again asks who they're looking for and is therefore duly arrested. Scene two. The soldiers, all 600 presumably of them, bring them to bring Jesus to Annas. Annas is an ex-high priest. Uh, he's an ex-high priest who's got a bit of a control freak mentality. He's still very heavily involved in the temple politics of Jerusalem and still retained his honorary title. It's a bit like the way the President of the United States is always called, to the day he dies, Mr. President. You can call Ryan Smart. You see, Mr. President, long after he resigns as President of the EU. Just yes. call him Mr. President. Annas is, a, is uh, therefore still referred to as a high priest. Now, the calm, regal bearing of Jesus is just unperturbed here. Uh, he's stared down 600 soldiers... Uh, He goes to see a high priest, that's no big deal for him at all. Uh, In terrible contrast to Peter, whose threefold denial of Jesus is interweaved with Jesus' appearance before Annas. We're going to come back to Peter in a couple of weeks when we see the whole of his story. But for Jesus, he continues towards his hour without wavering. When asked about his teaching, his disciples, he says, verse 20 of chapter 18, I've spoken openly to the world. There's nothing to hide. I've always taught in synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard what I said to them. They know what I said. We move to scene three. This time before Pilate. Pilate, the Roman procurator at the time. There's a delicious irony that's recorded here. Uh, this episode has Pilate scurrying back and forth. He's outside, then he's inside, then he's outside, then he's inside, then he's outside, then he's, outside, then he's inside. He's outside and inside again, seven times, back and forth, like a puppet. Why is he going outside and inside? It's because the Jews are outside, but Jesus is inside. Why are the Jews outside? Verse 28, Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. They won't, these Jewish leaders, enter the house of a Roman for fear of Gentile germs, a bit like girl germs. Gentile germs. Ritual contamination. Oh no. Though they're pretty comfortable with slaughtering the author of life. You see what's happening? In their response to Jesus, they are self-condemned. Condemned by their own attitude. Pilate is contemptuous of them. Verse 31 Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Now, although technically it was true that Jewish authorities didn't have the power of capital punishment, uh, it was tolerated, uh, but only in the customary Jewish form, namely stoning someone. That's got nothing to do with what you smoke, it's got to do with what you throw. They press Pilate to impose not the Jewish death penalty, but the Roman death penalty, namely crucifixion. And thereby they fulfil the words of Jesus regarding what type of death he was to die. That is, that he would be lifted up. Lifted up. You get the play on words? Lifted up to glory. Lifted up on the cross. Pilate does his first shuffle. He goes back into his office and asks Jesus two straight questions. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, Jesus kind of dismisses him. Do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation chief priests have handed up me, you over to me. What have you done? There are the two questions. Are you the king of the Jews and what have you done? And to his straight questions, he gets straight answers. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Yes, Jesus is a king, but not a king as we know it. His is a kingdom not of this world, not a kingdom created and upheld like all the kingdoms of this age with guns and violence and threats. Not a politics that resembles uh, anything you've seen in the media. The politics here are the politics of sacrifice for Jesus, not the politics of self-interest. This is a kingdom where the king exercises his kingly authority at his most glorious by being killed. This is not a kingdom that Pilate a ruthless and violent man has any chance of comprehending. He says, "Aha! Uh-huh, so you are a king. It's almost comic. He thinks he's got Jesus all figured out. But in fact, Jesus turns the table. Jesus has got Pilate. Verse 37, you say that I'm a king for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asks him, what is truth? This is Jesus' answer to Pilate's second question. What has he done? Well, here's what he's done. He has testified to the truth. But this testimony is not some kind of abstract publication of important thoughts. No, this is a testimony that's kind of like a divine sorting hat. It's not so much that you comprehend it. It comprehends you. You don't discern it. It discerns you. When Jesus testifies to the truth, He's not at stake here. You are. You see, if you belong to the truth, if you have any sense of rightness or accuracy about what's true in the world, if you know what's up and what's down, what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false, well, then you listen to Jesus. That means that if you're not listening to Jesus, but, say, killing him, then you don't belong to the truth. It puts a question to each one of us today, doesn't it? Are you listening to Jesus? You can find out whether you're of the truth right there. Are you listening to Jesus? Well, Pilate and Jesus have talked about kinship and now with thick irony they enact the kingship of Jesus. First he is royally dressed, chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they dressed him in a purple robe, purple being the royal colour, and they kept coming up to him saying, Hail King of the Jews and striking him on the face. And then he is royally placed Uh, in the face of the insistence by the Jews that they execute Jesus. uh, He mocks them again Chapter 19, verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was a day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon, and he said to the Jews, Here is your king. I think in verse 13 you'll see this if you have a new RSV version, or perhaps one of the other versions. Uh, It better fits with the irony to read the alternate reading It's it's perfectly uh, possible, in fact, I I think probably more likely, that with Jesus still dressed in royal purple and bearing his crown, it's not that Pilate comes out and he sits in the judge's bench. What he does is he comes out and he presents Jesus and sits Jesus down on the judge's bench and presents him to the Jews and says, here is your king. And you get the irony, don't you? He thinks he's mocking Jesus. But in fact, he speaks the truth that he doesn't know. They are enraged and their self-condemnation is completed. Verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but the emperor. Then they handed him over to them to be crucified. They kept themselves pure for the Passover feast one of the prayers that they would pray at Passover, part of the liturgy, the formal services that they would have enacted, uh, which they would made sure that they could do by not going into Pilate's house, goes like this. Ready? Here's the prayer that they would pray. From everlasting to everlasting you are God. Beside you we have no king, redeemer or saviour, no liberator, deliverer, provider, none who takes pity in every time of distress and trouble, We have no king but you. That is the prayer of their lips. But here is the prayer of their hearts. We have no king but the emperor. What they say with their lips has nothing to do with what they do with their hearts. And that's a terrible divide, isn't it? To have one thing on your lips in church... Sunday by Sunday, and another thing in your heart. Their self-condemnation is complete. Nothing more needs to be said. The trial is over. Not the trial of Jesus, of course, but the trial of Pilate and the trial of the Jews. For really it is they who are on trial here. And along with them, us actually. Pilate has not listened to Jesus and so has judged himself to not belong to the truth. The Jewish leaders have utterly betrayed their God and declared that they have no king but the emperor when in fact their king is before them. And so John concludes this scene with the simple words full of pathos and shame. Then he handed, them, uh, he handed him over to them to be crucified. The crucifixion itself is recounted in stark form uh, with few details. The regal dignity of Jesus is obvious. Uh, The truth is there in ironic form translated into three languages uh, to make sure that we understand that this is a moment of universal significance. Uh, His clothes are divided amongst the soldiers. His tunic is gambled away according to divine purpose. This is no accident. This is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He even takes care of his mother the way a good Jewish boy should or perhaps symbolically handing over the Jewish past to the apostolic future. And when his time comes, he dies. Chapter 19, verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfil the scripture, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And it's hard not to sing, isn't it? Here is love, vast as the ocean, Loving kindness as the flood. When the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy, float a vast. And gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. He breathed his last. The epilogue is straightforward. Two unlikely lads, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, neither of whom would even make the starting gate for disciple of the decade, in an act of great devotion, great devotion at serious risk for themselves. Collect the body of Jesus, prepare it for burial and lay it to rest, verse 41. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified and in the garden there was a new tomb In which no one had ever been laid. Nothing like this had ever been done before, you see. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the passion of the Christ, according to John. I suspect it would be best simply to stop there and praise Jesus. For an hour or twelve, what courage, what royal dignity, what divine love, what unspeakable sacrifice. But we need to take heed not only of its power and passion but also of its meaning and to notice the hints in the passage as we've uh, skimmed over it. And uh, you do a lot worse than today to make sure that you read over these two chapters at home. Uh, on your way home perhaps, Uh, both in this passage and also in the earlier part of Jesus' career as to the significance, the particular significance and understanding of his death. And so here's the crucial thing to say, ready? The crucial thing to say is that his death was a death for others. His death was a death for others. It was not a thing alone all in itself, it was something fundamentally about others in our place. It's not a hard thing to grasp particularly that one person can die for others. Uh, for me, I remember when I was in my first few weeks, I think, at university, I heard this story uh, prior to the Battle of the Somme in the First World War in the Thiepval Wood. Uh, a young man by the name of Billy McFasden, Billy McFasden and his fellow bombers were making their final preparations in a short very narrow assembly trench. Boxes of grenades had been opened and the bombs were being distributed. Shells were falling here and there in the wood as the Germans searched for likely targets in the Ulster Division positions. The shelling had not yet stripped all the foliage from the trees and the bright early morning sun threw dappled uh, shadows over the Belfast men as they worked. Suddenly, a box of grenades fell to the floor of the trench. No one seems to know how it happened, perhaps an explosion, closer than the rest, dislodged it. Perhaps it was just knocked over in the camped trench, cramped trench. Sorry. But the fall had knocked the pins out of two grenades. In four seconds they would explode. And in that crowded, enclosed space the effect would be disastrous. While some stared in horror at the small metal objects, Macfazden pushed himself forward and threw his body over the two grenades. A moment later the live grenades exploded and Billy McFasden was dead. They said they never found the trunk of his body. So destroyed by the blast was it. In giving his own life, you see, he had saved his friends, but only one other man in the trenches was slightly hurt. They laid what was left of his body carefully aside, hoping that someone would be able to bury it later. And then they finished tearing out the grenades and waited sadly for the battle to begin. That's an imperfect picture of what Jesus has done here, you see. He gave his life for others. This is not primarily an example, although it is that, and we'll come to that. This is an achievement. He gave his life to save your life. You see this in the, first, uh, the first hint of this in the reference to Caiaphas in chapter 18, verse 14, whose high priest that year had sought uh, to kill Jesus but had inadvertently spoken the truth. Back in chapter 11 and verse 49, uh, he'd said this, You know nothing at all. Uh, that's not a very useful technique in a committee meeting, just by the way. They're having a committee meeting and uh, I'd recommend that on the whole you don't try and pull that one off. You're a bunch of idiots. Uh, he's a high priest so he gets away with it. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. What he means, of course, is that let's just do away with Jesus, otherwise he'll make a fuss and people will follow him and the Romans will come in and crunch us all. That's what he means. John knows something deeper. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation and not for the nation only but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. And so from that day on they planned to put him to death. It's not just Caiaphas though. In John chapter 10 Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd in contrast to the bandits. Interestingly, the exact same word for bandit is used of Barabbas in the crucifixion account as for bandit in John 10. They let a bandit go and they crucify the shepherd, you see. Bandits think only of themselves, but Jesus, the good shepherd, the true shepherd, lays down his life, lays down his life for the sheep. Both in this fold, he says, namely Israel, but beyond this fold as well, the Gentiles. Now, we go once further here. One of the great images for kings in Israel was that of shepherd. After the great, the first great king, king after God's own heart, David, who was himself a shepherd. And suddenly all the royal language, the kingship references... In the passion narrative comes alive as you realize that the only kind of king Israel knew was a shepherd king. And you realize that exactly the kingly power of this shepherd king, robed in purple, crowned with a crown, is to behave exactly as a shepherd king should, to lay his life down for the sheep. One final reference makes the point again just after Jesus has announced that it's his hour uh, to be glorified and that it's come he says this, he says very truly uh, chapter 12 verse 24 I tell you unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies it remains just a single grain. Why? If it dies it bears much fruit. It's fruitfulness that is the key for Jesus. The impact of his death on others. Uh, the agricultural metaphor works, doesn't it? I don't know whether you've ever done one of those uh, HSIE experiments or science experiments, whatever it might be, uh, where you have a packet of seeds that look pretty useless just on their own. You keep them in the packet, useless. You take them, you put them in the ground, you kill them, you bury them, they die. What happens? Large melons. At least that's what they did when I put my seeds in the ground. Seeds in the packet, no good. Seeds in the ground, fruitful, multiply. This is exactly what Jesus sees for himself. Chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour... No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Another said, an angel has spoken to him and Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Imagine the heart of Jesus troubled. A man utterly fearless. in One with the Father. And even he doesn't want to go through with this. But the word that's used here is strong. It's, it's turmoil. He's agitated, horrified, convulsed, shocked as he contemplates what's about to happen to him. Short breath, sweaty palms, the heartbeat which pounds in his ears. Real fear, real terror, just as you might know it. But instead of praying, Father save me from this hour, which is what he wanted, he prays, Father glorify your name, which is what he wanted more. You see that? He chooses to glorify the Father And it is this which is his hour, which is his glory of being lifted up onto the cross that glorifies the Father. Jesus defines his glory in terms of the Father's glory. He dies to his own ambitions and purposes. He dies to his own life in order to achieve the Father's ambitions and purposes. And so he goes to the cross, he judges the world and when he's lifted up, he draws all people to himself in salvation and love. Jesus' death was a death for you. Well, let's conclude, draw the threads together. First, I want to suggest you we need to hear the sheer completed work of grace. That is the death of Jesus for us. Right at the very end of his time, you remember what Jesus said? He said, it is finished. He didn't say, it's kind of halfway done. He didn't say, well, I've got the job started, but now it's up to you disciples to continue it on. He didn't say, well, I've nearly done it. What Jesus says, he means, it is finished. Here is the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world and it is finished. Your sin is born away. Can I ask you to go away today with a deeper conviction than ever, with a greater confidence than ever, with a deeper appreciation of the completion of the grace of God than ever, that it is finished. Your sin no longer exists for you as far as God is concerned. One of the great theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, put it this way. Because he is there, and we can look at him, we no longer have to recognize sin in ourselves being freed from the intolerable responsibility of it, not because it's no longer a fact, but because he has made it his own for us. Barth says, Our sin is no longer our own. It is his sin, the sin of Jesus Christ. God, he himself as the obedient son of the Father, has made it his own. And in that way he has judged it and judged us as those who have committed it. That's just a long-winded way of saying it's finished. It really is finished. Believe this, won't you? My grandmother, uh, who's died now, some years ago, just after her 90th birthday, whispered to me one night, me and Percy didn't wait, you know. She meant that they'd slept together before they were married and that 70 years later she was finally able to speak those words to a skinny, punky grandson that just happened to work for the church. She had been to church for years But I never really believed Jesus when he said it's finished. It's finished. Whatever your conscience accuses you of, the sexual fumblings you commit with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, the lies that you tell, the grudges that you nurse and nurture in your heart, your embarrassment about being a Christian with your old friends, your plagiarism, whatever you you justify since everyone else is doing it anyway, whatever that might be, as you look to Jesus, lifted up, just like the serpent in the desert was lifted up, as you trust Him, will you hear His words straight to your conscience today? It is finished. If you're not a Christian, particularly, can I urge you today to hear the words of Jesus which come to you as an offer. He can make an end to your sin. He can cleanse your conscience in a way that you'll never be able to do yourself. You have nothing to fear from Jesus. You have nothing to hold back from in becoming a Christian. All you have to lose is your sin and your guilt. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Good Shepherd who gives his life for you. Will you put your trust in Him? Believe in Him follow him. But it doesn't stop there. You see for Jesus it's true that unless he falls to the earth and dies he remains unfruitful unprofitable and so he goes to the cross falling and dying but he goes on immediately after that saying and applies the same thing to you and I back in chapter 12 verse 25 and 26. He says those who love their life lose it and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honour. Notice the either-or form of this thing. You can love your life or you can hate your life in this world. As ever, Jesus is entirely black and white in a way which forces us to discern and to decide. And corresponding to those two options are two outcomes. If you love your life, Then you will lose it. If you hate your life, then you will keep it. This is both a start up instruction and a regular service kind of instruction. It's a start up instruction in that to start the Christian life, you need a fundamental shift in attitude that you live no longer for yourself, but for Him who has died and raised for you. Uh, It's a bit like my daughter, Paige. She used to be a person who liked to hold all her toys at the same time, not for her just one teddy bear plus a train. No, no, she had 63 teddy bears and she wanted them all at the same time. Thing was, every time she tried to grab another one, she'd drop 14 out of the hand that was in the first time. She would try to fit too much in her hand and so she would drop her bundle. It's a bit like that in life, you see. If you don't let go of your life in this age, then you can't grab hold of eternal life and you end up dropping your bundle. If you do let go, as scary an option as that may seem, as it was for Jesus, so it will be for you, you see. Glorious fruitfulness. And this is a day-by-day kind of thing as well. When you hear Jesus challenge as he goes to the cross to continue to live losing your life, not taking it up but instead taking up your cross. You see, if you serve Jesus, you must follow him. Where he goes, there his disciples will be also. And of course, where did Jesus go? He went to the cross. If you follow Jesus, Hear his promise. You'll be honoured by the Father. You'll be honoured with the same honour that Jesus has been honoured in his obedience. You'll be raised in glory. you receive life, the life of the age to, uh, to come. Honour from God, now and then. Now, I, I would imagine there are some very impressive people in this room. There, there are people here with scholarships worth at least 50 bucks. Do you know what I mean? they would be really genuinely intelligent, achieving people and you've received honour upon honour even. You've got one of those you go to one of those uh, schools where you have a blazer and and your blazer has kind of a list that goes all down your pants there so long. So many honours do you have and people look at you and go what a jerk for going to private school no they don't say that. (laughs) They say what an honourable person you are Well, it's all very well to be honoured by your school. Mind you, it's day two of uni and already no one cares what you did at school. You might get honoured by your university. Have your name published in the paper. Gee, that's a thrill. I'll tell you what, can you imagine being honoured by God? That God says to you, yeah, she's alright, isn't she? She's like Jesus. He did it just like Jesus did He gave his life. He took up his cross. Let me ask you a question which puts the issue sharply. You ready for this? I want to ask you, in what concrete ways have you done anything that resembles falling to the earth and dying? In what concrete ways have you ever done anything that resembles falling to the earth and dying? hating your life in this world, being where Jesus is on the cross? That's a genuine question. I hope that you've all got something to say there. It's not a question that's meant to make you feel guilty. You need to forsake sin, paths that look good but are not, they're bad, and die to sin. You might stand up for Jesus and crucify your honour with other people You work hard with your youth group and so you don't do as well at uni. You get up early on Sunday morning after Sunday morning after Sunday morning to teach ungrateful five-year-olds and lose sleep. You forgive someone and forego the right to insist on revenge and allowing that part of you to die. In the end, you see, you can pray two prayers in your life. You can pray, Father, save me from this hour. Whatever your hour might look like, whatever way you might want to preserve your life, your comfort, your possessions, your lifestyle. You can pray that prayer. Or you can pray the prayer, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name through me, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, whatever you would have me do, wherever you would take me, glorify your name. Make sure that that is your daily prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant to us the power of your spirit to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for his death and that it is our life. And we ask that you would glorify yourself in us. Amen. Uh, well, thank you.